had a few people ask me uh, why Luke and how did, uh, how did I come up with this, and, uh, and I figured uh, everyone has been kind of blessed when I share with them, so I thought I'd share it with all of you. Um, you know, if you've been, if you've been uh, at Meadowcroft for long enough, you know that typically we don't do Advent series. Um, we, if whatever book of the Bible we, we happen to be in, we just continue in that book, whether it's Philippians or whether it's 1 Samuel, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're not going to take a break from that just because it's Christmas time, uh, because every Sunday is about Christ anyway. Uh, but people said, well, you know, ha- what happened with Luke? Well, we ended uh, the book of Daniel, and we had uh, some time, you know, to, to look for a next, uh, next book to be in. And I went to the elders and said, hey, it's been a long time since we did a synoptic gospel. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they're all very similar in, 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 in what they say. John's gospel is very different. And although we did recently do John, we haven't done a synoptic. So I said, no, why don't we do Luke? So they said, that sounds great. Uh, so I started preparing out and planning out the first sermons. And uh, the way it, the Lord worked it out is that uh, on Christmas Eve, which is going to be that Sunday, we'll actually be in the birth narrative. Uh, so you get your Advent series this year uh, by God's grace and his planning. Uh, so it turned out that, uh, that God wanted us to, uh, to do an Advent series this year. Well, we have been working our way through Luke, and, uh, and so far, we're still in chapter 1. We'll be in two, chapter 2 again on Christmas Eve. Uh, but so far, we've seen really uh, that the angel Gabriel, which I was having lunch with a member this week, and, and he said, you know, it's so interesting to see how much Daniel has intersected with Luke. Because Gabriel, this angel that gave important messages to Daniel, is now, 500 years later, giving important messages. And as I've mentioned, uh, God has broken his silence. After the prophet Malachi, there's been 400 years where God has not spoken prophetically to anyone in the nation of Israel. And suddenly, Gabriel comes on the scene, first to Zechariah the priest in the temple, in the holy place, just before the the curtain, before the Holy of Holies, and, and tells him that his wife Elizabeth, who is old, perhaps in her 80s, and barren, is going to bear a son, and that their son is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. That was the first message. And then the second message he brings, which we saw last week, was to a virgin uh, in Nazareth named Mary. And the message to her was that she, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would conceive and give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Our text this morning follows up on that. It is Luke chapter 1. Verses 39 through 56. As always, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along, not only as I read, but as uh, we go through this sermon. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, you can look, you can find a Bible on the seat in front of you, and you'll find our text on page 856. It says, In the sixth month, oh no, I am. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, 
And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. <clears throat> so the text says that in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now we know, if we just do a little math here, and it's not hard, uh, we know that essentially Mary must have left and gone on this journey to see her relative Elizabeth right after Gabriel gave her the message. Uh, probably within days she left. And the reason we know this is because when Gabriel meets with Mary, uh, he tells her that Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. That's in verse 36. And then at the end of our passage, we see that Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months and then goes back home, and that she leaves and goes back home just before John the Baptist is born, which we see and we'll see next week. So really, she departs, and we see this, with haste. She goes quickly, right after Gabriel leaves, to visit with Elizabeth. Now, she goes into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, I, at the men's study, uh, some of the guys said, yeah, they, isn't this right around the same area? Uh, if you're not familiar, if you don't have a map in your mind of Israel, then it may seem like they're, they're relatively close. And I guess in comparison to distances in the U.S., they are relatively close, but for them, they weren't. Uh, Mary lived in Nazareth, and that was north. That's where Jesus spends a lot of his early ministry, is around the Sea of Galilee and places like Capernaum, for instance. That's where Nazareth is located. This hill country, uh, scholars say, is probably about 100 miles south. It's 
below the city of Jerusalem in the hill country in that area. And of course, Jesus spends some of his time, we know from the Gospels, in that area as well. So think about this. I mean, a hundred miles away. New York City is about a hundred miles from here, roughly. You imagine, you know, leaving tomorrow morning on foot and walking to New York City so that you can see the decorations for Christmas? How long would that take you? <laughs> like, think of the the ridiculous nature of that journey. I mean, by car, it's two hours, but imagine walking there. And Mary wastes no time in walking roughly 100 miles to go visit Elizabeth. And it's not a journey that, that would be very easy. For one, it, that journey would have taken her about three or four days to take. And the journey would have been uh, relatively dangerous. In fact, uh, almost all the time that somebody would make a journey like that, they would have other people with them. Perhaps Mary did have someone with her, but the text doesn't say that. I mean, for all we know, she went by herself, and there were no uh, phones, there's no GPS. I never thought I would be the kind of person who, when I go to get in my car and realize I don't have my phone, go back inside, no matter how late I am, to get my phone. It's, it's like my lifeline to everyone. You know, if I break down, I can call someone. If, if my tire blows out, I can call someone. Mary's got nothing. She's leaving. And if she gets lost or hurt or killed, who's going to know? But she leaves. Now, why would Mary do this? Why undertake a 100-mile journey that's going to take three or four days to go see a relative that she hasn't seen or spoken to in six months. I mean, we know that, that, I mean, maybe they're close, but Mary didn't even know that Elizabeth was pregnant. Gabriel had to tell her that your cousin Elizabeth or, or whatever is six months pregnant. Well, it's not because Gabriel commanded her to. It's not like he said, hey, behold, your relative Elizabeth is pregnant. Now arise and go visit her, for thus commandeth the Lord. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He just tells Mary what happened to Elizabeth, and she immediately departs. Well, Scripture doesn't tell us why she does it, but if we look at the text before us, it seems like, and if we just think about human nature and what has happened, what has been told to Mary, I believe she went first to have her faith strengthened and second to have her experience validated. These are human beings. Sometimes I think we read in Scripture these people seem like they're you know, superhuman at some level, but they, they were like us. And Mary, of course, yes, she has faith. She did believe what Gabriel told her. But what did he tell her? What he told her is like the most fantastic thing anyone could have heard. You're, going, you're a virgin. Prior to... Uh, you know, getting married and uh, having relations with your husband, you're going to conceive. And you're going to conceive a child solely by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the son that will be born to you is going to be the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the Savior of the world. Can you imagine being told that? Mary, it says, believed. She had an amazing response of faith. But you can imagine that she would love, you know, remember she was given a sign. 
She didn't ask for one. It only took Gabriel's word for her to believe, but, but at the end, Gabriel said, now listen, Mary, your relative Elizabeth, who's old and was barren, has now also conceived and is in her sixth month. Therefore, I want you to know nothing is impossible with God. And then he departed. Think about the situation that both of these women are in. I mean, Elizabeth is in a weird situation as well. Her, son, or her, her husband, Zechariah, comes home from having served in the temple. He's mute. He left, he could speak, he comes back, he can't speak. She asks him somehow, you know, she asks him what happened. Somehow he tells her. No one else was there to see it. He was alone. He saw this angel alone. Everyone was wondering what happened. He came out. They surmised that he had a vision. So he tells her somehow, charades, Pictionary. How does he tell Mary or Elizabeth what happened to him? So somehow he gets the message across to her, look, uh, you're actually going to conceive. I know it sounds crazy, but you're going to conceive and you're going to bear the forerunner to the Messiah. And now this has happened to her. She's conceived. Now look, it's, a, it's an incredible miracle that she has conceived. I'm sure that was a huge uh, boost to her faith. But it's been six months. Six months. No more Gabriel. No more messages. Her husband can't speak. Still can't until the baby's born. No one else has confirmed any of this. You can imagine what she must be thinking now. Is it really true? Is it true that I'm going to bear the forerunner to the Messiah? Mary is in, I think in some ways, an even stranger position. Because she has now been told by this angel that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and she will conceive. She has conceived, as we'll see, but not by natural means. Uh, she's not showing at all. And she's been told that not just that a miracle is going to happen, but that she will bear the one and only person in the history of the world that will be one person with two natures, human and divine. You can imagine what both of these women might be thinking is this true? Could it be true? For each of them, Mary and Elizabeth, there was really only one person in the entire world that they could go to and kind of share a unique experience with. That, that's what we do as human beings. We, we like to seek out those who can relate to what we've gone through. Uh, you know, I, you, you, you all know that I, I recently lost my, my best friend who I never thought, you know, in a million years that I'd be going through life without him. Um, nope, you know, nobody else in my life has gone through that right now that I know. And so sometimes my family will wonder, like, what, you know, why, why do you seem down? Did, what, what happened? Are you, are you upset about something that happened in the world? Or did we do something? Or whatever. And I'll say, well, I'm, I'm still just grieving over Tommy. You know, they, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Yes, you're right. I forgot about that. Because they're not going through it like I am. But, 
Veterans of wars will get together. Uh, People who are going through grieving go to grief share together. Why? Because they're trying to make a connection to somebody who can say, I know what you're talking about. And for these two women, there, there is no one else. Who in the world is going through this same thing? And I thought, wow, wasn't it neat for for God to have two relatives have this happen to them? I mean, God, Gabriel could have said to Mary, hey, behold, there's a woman in Rome right now that you've never met and you never will meet, and she's bearing the forerunner to the Messiah. He'll make his way here, and he will point the way to your son. But no, it's, it's your relative, someone that you can go to, that you know that you can confirm this with. I think they needed each other to strengthen their faith and to validate their experience. And I think we need that too, Christian. Because if you think about it, what's happened to us is just as miraculous. We have had our dead hearts brought to life by the invisible and almighty power of the Holy Spirit. We trust in a Messiah that we've never met personally, that we believe on account of this word and our faith and the power of the Spirit. We pray to a God that we don't see, but nevertheless we believe wholeheartedly in. But if you're like me, our faith can waver. We can sometimes doubt some of these things. You see, We gather together with fellow believers who can strengthen our faith and validate our experience. Only believers can know exactly what is going on with other believers. It's funny, when when I went in to vote in in the most recent local elections, uh, the woman that, when I told her my name, she said, Benfer, what are they bussing you in today <laughs> to this place? Because Luke had already gone, and the Michelle had already gone, and my dad had already gone. So I was the fourth Benfer to show up. And we got into a conversation, and, and there was just something about her. And I know you all know what I'm talking about if you're There was something about her that made me think she was a Christian. I went and voted, and as I was leaving, I was waiting for my dad. Oh, my dad went with me. And as, uh, as, as I was leaving, I was waiting for my dad, and we got into a further conversation, and, and eventually I told her, she said, what brought you up here? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And she said, you are? And I said, yeah. And she said, I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> so there were, we, we were both sensing the same thing. And, and when you're here on the Lord's day for worship, you're with other people who you can look around and see are singing the same songs to the Lord that you're singing to. You look around and you see fellow believers who are bowing their heads and praying to the same Lord that you're bowing your head and praying to. You are looking around and seeing Christians who are tearing up over the same message of the gospel that you're tearing up over. You're you're talking after the service to fellow believers who love Jesus more than anyone, even more than their spouses, even more than relatives that they know in person. They love this one that they've never met in person as much as you do. And it validates your faith. It validates your experience. It strengthens your faith. Parents, your children need to be here because they need to know 
My parents aren't the only people in the world that believe this. When they're here, they look around and see lots of other adults that believe exactly what you believe. And it strengthens their belief that what you're saying is true. So Mary goes to Elizabeth. Luke tells us that she enters the house of Zechariah and greets Elizabeth. Now, we don't know what this greeting was comprised of. I mean, was it simply a hello uh, like we would give or haven't seen you in a long time? Or, or did Mary go into a long discussion of everything that happened to her? We don't know. I mean, Luke, again, doesn't tell us. So it's not, the greeting itself isn't the important thing here. What's important, I think, are the reactions that happen due to this greeting. So we see three reactions here. John's reaction, Elizabeth's reaction, and then Mary's reaction. So the first one is the most unusual. The first one is John's reaction. John the Baptist. He's not even on the scene yet, in a sense, But when Elizabeth hears the sound of Mary's greeting, John, who is a six-month-old fetus in the womb, leaps when this greeting is heard. Now, we know from Gabriel that John is going to be someone special. He, He told Zechariah that this son of yours is going to be great before the Lord. He's told the son of yours is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he's told that that this son of yours is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah and that his sole job in this life is, is to be the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets and that his sole job is to point people to Jesus. Point people away from himself and to the Messiah. And as we'll see when we go through Luke and as we see in other Gospels, that's exactly what John did. Just read the Gospels. And that was what he did over and over again. John said, I am not the Christ. I'm only the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's who I am. It was John who said, look, I baptize you with water for for repentance, but, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John wasn't that at all. John is the one who, when he saw Jesus, said, wait a second, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to me. John is the one who, seeing Jesus walk by, points to his disciples and points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is the one who said, I am not the bridegroom. I'm only a friend of the bridegroom. He must increase while I must decrease. Again and again and again, over and over, John's job was to point at Jesus and say, it's not about me, it's about him. Don't look at me, look at him. And what, what's so amazing about what happens here is that John's prophetic ministry begins from his mother's womb. 
Think about that. Before he was born, before he opened his eyes and saw the world around him, before he could proclaim with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, this little boy leaped for joy in the presence of his Master and Lord. You know, Jesus said, when the religious leader said, tell everyone to shut their mouths about you. He said, I tell you, even if none of them spoke, the rocks would cry out that I am Lord. One of these boys is the herald of the king. The other is the king of kings. Well, that was John's reaction. Elizabeth, her reaction is that she is filled with the Holy Spirit. Yet again, another mention of the Holy Spirit in Luke's Gospel, and we'll see many more. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cries out, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And it seems as though immediately, even though Mary perhaps went to see Elizabeth to have her faith strengthened, it's upon Mary's greeting that Elizabeth is strengthened. Again, her her husband's been unable to say anything to her. No one else in in her local area knows anything about this, really. Uh, She's kind of keeping concealed. But as soon as she's filled with the Holy Spirit, when Mary enters and greets her, then she knows Now she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that that what has happened to her is exactly as Zechariah has said. Interestingly, she blesses Mary. Mary's the younger. Mary is, by every measure, the one who ought to have been blessing Elizabeth. She's the younger. Elizabeth is uh, a relative of the high priest Uh, Elizabeth is married to a a priest who just served in the temple. Mary should have blessed Elizabeth, but here the roles are reversed. And it is Elizabeth who blesses Mary. And it's because Elizabeth says, you are the mother of my Lord. Just pause and think about that statement. That is an incredible statement. John is a six-month-old fetus. How old is Jesus at this time? If Mary left within a day or two, Jesus is five days old. Think about that. John is a six-month-old fetus. Jesus is a five-day-old embryo. How big is Jesus at this point? Well, I looked it up. After five days, a human embryo is made up of about 70 to 100 cells. The size is about the size of the head of a pin. Jesus is the size of the head of a pin. But according to Scripture... According to God, not only is John considered a baby in the womb, but so is Jesus. 
at five days old, being the size of the head of a pin, Jesus is a person. It's not just that he will be someone once he's born, but that he is someone. He's a particular someone, someone who's been created and known and loved by his father, and he's only five days old. You know, this should leave us no doubt at all, and there are plenty of other scriptures to go to, but this should leave us no doubt at all about what scripture teaches about the life of the unborn in the womb, about the personhood of the unborn, about where the Bible stands on abortion, should leave us no doubt at all. And it should also leave us no doubt those of you who are here this morning who have lost little ones in the womb. It should leave you no doubt, no matter how old they were, that they were a particular someone created and known by their creator. And if you are in Christ, then one day you will see them and meet them. But notice Elizabeth calls Jesus, this five-day-old boy, my Lord. Think about that. To the Jew, only God is the Lord. This means that from conception, Jesus is the one person with two distinct natures in the history of humanity. One person who was both at the same time fully human and fully God. John Calvin says this, This shows us that God's Son was so united in His two natures that He so combined human nature, which He took from us, with His divine essence, that He was but one person. Here, Elizabeth demonstrates the unity of the two natures, such that Jesus Christ is but one person. Just as he is everlasting God, so too is he true man. And such a man unites us to himself, that we might be children of God and share in his glory. Notice, too, that this proclamation Jesus is Lord, or you are the mother of my Lord, is prompted by the work of the Holy Spirit. That it's the work of the Holy Spirit that Elizabeth shouts this proclamation, which is exactly what happens to us. Scripture says it's, it's by the work of the Holy Spirit that we too look at this man and say, you are Lord. And you are God. 1 Corinthians 12. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In that sense, it's, it's almost as though Elizabeth is given the privilege of being the very first Christian convert. It's interesting here at the end, Elizabeth says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth doesn't say, and blessed are you, Mary. Now, again, of course, she's including Mary in this. 
But it's almost like she leaves it ambiguous enough. Blessed is the one who believed because she believed. And every one of us here who believes that God fulfilled His promises in Christ are blessed. This is faith, brothers and sisters. Faith, Hebrews 11 says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Well, finally, we get to Mary's reaction. Her reaction is known as the Magnificat. That's based on the first word of what she sings here. The first word in Latin was Magnificat in the Latin translation of Scripture. I'll read the whole thing here. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now notice here. Notice how different her reaction is here from her reaction to what Gabriel told her. What Gabriel told her was what was going to happen. You would think that after being told the, the, the incredible news that first came to her, she would erupt in this. But no, I mean, what, her reaction to what Gabriel first tells her is a simple, humble faith. May it to be to me as you have said, I am the Lord's servant, right? At that point, I would imagine Mary was a swirl of emotion, uh, fear, joy, doubt, who knows what was going on in her heart and mind, even though she expressed a faith. Yet when she shows up and hears from Elizabeth, my baby just leaped because he's the forerunner to the Lord that you're carrying. Notice how Mary erupts in praise. It's a completely different reaction. Now her faith has been strengthened. Again, her experience has been validated. And notice, like Daniel... We talked about when we were going through Daniel, Mary's all about Daniel's age when Daniel was first exiled, probably 13, 14 years old. And remember, Daniel had been so saturated with God's word that he carried it with him the whole time in Babylon. Here, Mary, what she says is not, she's not quoting directly a Bible passage, but what she's saying is an amalgamation of lots of biblical passages in the Old Testament. The primary one probably being uh, Hannah's uh, exclamation of praise when she uh, bears Samuel. But again, just shows you how much Mary has ingested as a 14-year-old God's word, that she carries it in her, hearts, in her heart. She proclaims here, 
Three things, really. First, what God has done for her personally. Then she goes on to talk about what God has done for others. And then lastly, she says how God has kept his promises. Notice here when she talks about what he's done for her, that she is profuse in recalling all the great things that have happened to her. She talks about how God has looked upon me. God has seen me and noticed me. God has done such a great thing for me that from now on all generations are going to call me blessed. If you just read those words in a vacuum, you might think that she's being boastful. We can certainly boast about things that are gifts that God has given to us that we nonetheless turn around and speak of as, as our gifts. But notice that all the praise, despite all the great things God has done for her, goes to God alone. The focus, if you just read the whole thing, is, is all about God, how great he is, all the great things he's done. And that's what we should do as Christians. We should never be shy to tell others in the world all the great things God has done for us. But they shouldn't walk away from that discussion thinking that we're boasting about ourselves. They should leave seeing us as humble and reflecting only the great things that God has done. And that's what Mary does. Notice here that whereas Elizabeth calls Jesus my Lord, Mary refers to him in a roundabout way as my Savior. It is God, the Old Testament says, who is both Lord and Savior. Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, for fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame will not consume you. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God saving his people. God saved Noah from the flood. God saved Moses and the Israelites from the Egyptians. He saved the people of Israel time and again from invasion from other nations. It was Israel. God time and again chose and saved the nation that you would have least suspected. It wasn't Egypt that God chose as his people. It wasn't Assyria. It wasn't Babylon. It's not Rome. It's not Rome. And none of these great nations did God choose. It was the least. It was the weakest. It was the nation no one else would have chosen. You know, Mary and Elizabeth lived during the age of the Roman Empire. It's when the age, and we're kind of seeing that now, an age where might makes right. The Roman Empire might made right. It was an age where Caesar could slaughter a million Gauls and everyone think it's a great idea. It was an age when people were treated less than animals. It was an age where the troubles of common people were treated as insignificant, where peasants were treated with disdain and mockery. No one in Rome... No one during that time would have cared anything 
for a peasant girl living in Nazareth in the armpit of the Roman Empire. Mary was the least of the least. And what does she say? The Lord God Almighty, He who is mighty, has noticed me. He looked upon me, and He chose me, and He's done great things for me. This Magnificat has this theme all throughout. God looks on the humble. He scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty. He exalts the humble. He fills the hungry with good things. He sends away the rich with nothing. The gospel of Jesus goes against every natural inclination that we have. If we were the ones crafting the gospel, we would notice the great we would notice the strong. We do that. What athletes do we praise? Do we praise the backup kicker that never gets on the field, or do we praise the star-wide receiver who scores every touchdown? We notice the celebrities. We pay big bucks to see their movies. God chooses the foolish, the weak, and the despised. You know, Christopher Watkin in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, he calls Jesus' ministry the great reversal. And we see this great reversal where God does the unexpected. We see this again and again and again in the person of Christ and in his ministry. Time and again, Jesus reaches out to the downtrodden, the outcast. Jesus seeks out the widows. He seeks out the strangers. He seeks out the sinners. He seeks out the tax collectors, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the children, the women, the prostitutes, the Samaritans. Friends, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came he came to fulfill Ezekiel 34 where God says, I myself will seek for my sheep. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, so I will seek out my sheep. I myself will be shepherd. I will seek the lost. The gospel is the great reverse. In the gospel, man does not try to save himself by working his way up to God, but God stoops down he becomes man in order that he might save those who could not save themselves and jesus was born not to an aristocrat he wasn't born to a king he was born to a lowly nazareth peasant girl and he died the death not of an aristocrat or a king but he died the death of the worst of criminals you know we look at this cross and we see it as an object of veneration. But when Jesus was crucified, it was an object of scandal and shame. The earliest depiction of the cross in the history of the world that we've found was actually a picture of mockery. It was discovered in the 1800s. It's, it was unearthed during, during an excavation of Rome. It dates around A.D. 200. And in this depiction... 
Christ on a cross has the head of a donkey, and the man who's worshiping him is depicted as a fool. And it says underneath, he worships his God, the fool. Friends, the one who was from conception, Lord and Savior, the one who was from conception, God and man, who deserved all praise and honor and glory, went to the cross and was the object of mockery and shame and scorn. But he did it all in order that he might save us. Brothers and sisters, rejoice this morning. Like Mary, we can too can sing with all our hearts that he who is mighty has done great things for us and holy is his name. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this time. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for this song. We're thankful that you have brought us here this morning that we might be fed, that we might be encouraged And that we might remember that you have done it all for us, that you have saved us, and that you did it through your Son. We pray that you would strengthen us now. In Jesus' name.